All right, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Jeff. I serve as the pastor up at the North Seattle Expression in Shoreline, uh, where things are going quite well by God's grace, but it's always good to be back here in Fremont with you guys, especially in this way as we open our Bibles and explore this next passage in the letter of Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to cover verses 1 to 16 this evening. Now, several years ago in Great Britain, there were some researchers that were doing a study, and these researchers, they went door-to-door asking, asking people about their views on God. And depending on whether the person being interviewed said they believed in God or they did not believe in God or they did not know what they believed in God, a series of follow-up questions would be asked then of these people. Now, for those who said they believed in God and the reality and the existence of of God, some of the follow-up questions went like this. Do you believe in a God who can intervene in human history? Do you believe God can perform miracles? Do you believe God can truly affect and change what is going on in your life right now? Now, when the article was finally published, its title was very telling. You see, the title of the article came from the response of one man who was interviewed because The response of this particular man was seen by the authors as most typical, most representative of all the people who were interviewed. You see, this man, when he was asked those questions about God, he answered them by saying, sure, I believe in God, of course, but not really a God like that. I don't really believe in that type of God. No, I just believe in the ordinary God. And so the title of the article when it was finally published was just that. The Ordinary God, that was the title, because that was the prevailing viewpoint that came through again and again from the people who were interviewed. And as we explore Philippians chapter 3 today, I'd like us to consider some of these same types of questions. If you believe in God, what do you believe about him? Do you believe he's a God who can intervene and make meaningful things happen in your heart and in your life and in the world around us? Or, like the people in this article, when it comes right down to it, do you and I, practically speaking, believe in more more in just the ordinary type of God? Now, one of the things we're going to see quite clearly here, and quite quickly, in fact, in this passage, is that the Apostle Paul knew absolutely nothing of an ordinary God. On the road to Damascus, Paul had encountered a God of extraordinary power and grace. And he's going to tell us something about that here in this passage today. This is a passage about one man's radical transformation, a personal uh, revolution, really, a moral and mental turnaround in Paul's life, and how it can happen in our lives as well. And not only did he come to know Jesus in a life-changing way on that day, what we're going to hear him saying in this passage is that since that first day, The very point of his life and his existence was to come to know this Jesus more and more deeply over time. And Paul's going to get real personal here for us. This is one of the most autobiographical chapters that Paul leaves us with in the New Testament. And it has some very interesting and important things to teach us, I think, as well. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 16, it's a big piece of text, and we're going to kind of move through it as we go here. I'd like to start by just kind of reading the first six verses and going from there. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. 
Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, as we explore this passage this evening, and really any passage, we always need to ask ourselves, what prompted the writing of these words in the first place by the author? And in this case, Paul is writing these words in the third chapter of this letter to the churches in Philippi because there was there was some confusion that was being stirred up among the Philippians as to what exactly it meant to be a Christian and what you must do to become one, and also how you go about living it out after you become one. Now, most scholars believe that this confusion among the Philippians was being stirred up by a group known as the Judaizers. These were false teachers who were promoting a false gospel in Philippi, just as they had been doing in uh, some other churches that Paul had planted in other regions. And we see Paul coming out pretty assertively here in the first couple of verses when he says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers who mutilate the flesh. And this language by Paul is a pretty startling contrast to the gentle and joyous language that we've been hearing from Paul up to this point in the letter of Philippians. But just as we've seen before with Paul in some of his other letters, he he always takes an aggressive and a very protective posture when it comes to gospel clarity and gospel precision. Now, these false teachers were believed to be Jewish converts to Christianity. They actually believed in Jesus. They believed he had risen. But it seems they were persuading people that to become a Christian, you needed to first kind of enter through the door of Judaism. And so they were adding their own form of religion to the gospel message, and in Paul's mind, thereby diluting that message and diminishing that message and in every way defacing that message as well. These false teachers were saying you need to submit yourself to all the laws and requirements of Judaism, including circumcision, including obedience to the Mosaic laws, including various rituals and traditions and observances of the Jewish religion, and they were insisting that the Philippians needed to do these things in addition to trusting Jesus in order to be saved. And when I say the Judaizers were adding their own form of religion to the gospel, what I mean is this. Religion says it all really depends on you. You need to do these things, and if you do them well enough and often enough and sincerely enough, then hopefully God will accept you, love you, and bless you. That's religion. But Paul would say that's not any good news at all. Paul makes this clear again and again in his writings that religion and the gospel simply do not mix. In fact, he would say the gospel is something of an anti-religion. The gospel says it's not about what you do or when you do it, how you do it, or how often you do it. Rather, the gospel says it's about what Jesus has done and whether you're trusting in his sufficiency alone. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul makes this pretty crystal clear, I think. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. 
This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, as we move through this passage today, Paul is going to share with us here in a very personal way something about what it means to him to be a Christian. Paul is going to remind us here that while religion is all about what you do, Christianity is really about who you know and who you trust. And Paul is going to start by kind of looking back and reflecting on his past. And the truth is, for every Christian, it's important that we do that too, that we look back and we remember and we reflect. Because there's always a before story and an after story when it comes to Jesus, isn't there? Before I met Jesus, things were a certain way. And since I met Jesus, things are another way. So have you thought about that? About how you would describe your own before and after story? I think it's a good thing to think about and to talk about and to share about with people who may need to hear it. And Paul says in verses 4 to 6 that before he met Jesus, he had a very promising future ahead of him, at least according to a worldly perspective. Paul was on the fast track in life. He had many achievements and accomplishments. And so Paul here is kind of laying out his resume, his resume before he met uh, Jesus. And it's, it's an impressive resume for that time and for that place. You see, Paul was highly educated. He was from a powerful family. He was a highly religious man. And he was very much on track to become a powerful and prestigious religious leader as a part of the religious Jewish sect known as the Pharisees. In fact, Paul was so zealous in his religion that before meeting Jesus, he had devoted himself to the persecution of those who followed Jesus because of the ways in which the message of Jesus challenged and contradicted his own religious beliefs. But one thing we see here with Paul is that he had everything pretty well laid out in his life, pretty well lined up uh, out ahead of him in his life. He was, he was on a very well-defined trajectory in his life where he expected to experience a pretty high level of power and influence and success in his future. That's why in verse 4 he says that if anyone has reason for confidence... If anyone has reason to boast about life, about personal accomplishments, about uh, religious performance, he says, I have more. He says, I have more reasons for boasting than any of you. But everything changed one day for Paul when he was traveling on the road to Damascus. He was, he was traveling on that road to do what he had been doing for some time, and that is harassing and torturing and even killing Christians simply because of their allegiance to Jesus. But Jesus had other plans for Paul that day. Jesus interrupted Paul's plans and Paul's life in a powerful way that day. And it's all recorded in Acts chapter 9, where we see the resurrected and risen Jesus showing up in a, in a burst of light, knocking Paul off his horse, blinding him, and utterly changing his life in a moment's time. We're told in Acts chapter 9 that after God restored Paul's sight a few days later, after this encounter, it says Paul rose, and it says Paul was baptized. And then in verses 20 to 22 of Acts chapter 9, it says, Paul immediately went out proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who, is, who made havoc in Jerusalem? And has he not come here for this purpose too, to bring them bound before the chief priests? It says, but Paul increased all the more in strength 
and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And so that's a pretty incredible turn of events in Paul's life right there. Paul was going in one direction, thinking he knew exactly uh, where his life was headed. And Jesus showed up and said, I have other plans and purposes for you, Paul. In spite of you, Paul. It seems like Jesus kind of took charge of Paul's life. He showed up and laid hold of Paul's heart and his uh, life in this encounter on the Damascus Road. And Paul, Paul was flat out changed. Jesus showed up and he disrupted and dismantled Paul's life. He redirected and, and repurposed Paul's life. And as Paul continues writing this letter to the Christians in Philippi, we get the unmistakable sense that he would not have it any other way. Listen to what he says, picking it up in verse 7. As Paul moves from his before story to his after story, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so all of Paul's hard work, his achievements, achievements all of Paul's accomplishments, his his resume, all of his striving, all of his religious performance, he says they don't matter to me anymore. He says they don't rule me or control me or appeal to me in the same ways that they did before. In fact, he says, compared to what I have now, I count all that as, as rubbish, which can also be translated as dung or excrement. So we see here in a very striking way how after meeting Jesus, Paul was radically changed. Paul's perspective had changed, his priorities had changed, his passion and his purpose in life had changed. And one thing we see here as Paul shares his personal testimony with us is Paul uh, is looking back and he's, he's counting. He's calculating the cost. He's doing kind of an audit of his life and he says, I count it all as loss and rubbish compared to what I have now. You see, Paul's eyes had been opened to a new reality, and he, he could see that he had been living in self-delusion and self-deception. He could see that the balance sheet upon which he was basing his life was quite false. What used to be gain for Paul, he was now counting as loss and rubbish. And while these changes seem to have happened quite suddenly with Paul, Jesus can and will do that very same thing for you and I changing our perspective, changing our priorities, redirecting our lives, repurposing our lives in his own way, by his own timing, as we follow him and as we trust him in faith. But for most of us, it will be a process that unfolds over time. For most of us, we're not going to simply wake up one morning and discover that we suddenly hate what we used to love. The things of this world that draw us in will continue to do so. They will continue to retain their allure and their power over us until they are supplanted by something superior, something surpassing. This is precisely what Paul is describing in this passage. 
the things of the world, what we value, what we do, what we want, what we purchase, what we possess, what we think about, these things will never in and of themselves cease to be appealing to us until our hearts are captivated by something better, by something brighter. If you've ever been out camping under the stars, the beauty of the sky at night can be quite stunning, it can be quite spectacular. The sky lights up, the stars really grab your attention and, and draw you in. But if you stay up late enough, or perhaps if you wake up early enough to, to see that sunrise, to see the sunrise, as the sun slowly begins to rise, those stars that were shining so brightly slowly begin to fade out of view. They're still there, they haven't gone anywhere, but they're being outshined, aren't they, by something brighter. Paul is saying, that's what happened in my life because of Jesus. And that's what should be happening at some level in the life of every follower of Jesus. As you and I press into this Christian journey and trust in the gospel more and more deeply, Jesus will begin to outshine your old affections and desires such that they no longer have the same appeal or power over you that they once had. They begin to lose their grip. They can and will be outshined by Jesus. And, and Paul tells us how in verse 7. He says it's by knowing him. It's by knowing Jesus. Paul says, that's what I care about now, and that's what I'm going after now, knowing the Christ, being in relationship with him, seeing clearly that he is the prize and he is the goal of it all. Now, it's important that we're clear on something here. Paul is not saying that we need to know more facts about Jesus. He's not talking about the acquisition of information or knowledge about Jesus. Even though as Christians we need and cherish those things as they're revealed to us in the scriptures. But some people think to be a Christian, you study the doctrines, you go to church, you, you go to a class, they take you through a class, you add some knowledge that you didn't have before. Right? I didn't know much about Christianity before, now I know something about it, and I've decided to commit myself to those principles that I learned about. But that's not at all what Paul is talking about here. Trusting in Jesus and following Jesus does indeed include a certain set of propositions that one uh, must believe, but at the very same time, it's much more than merely intellectual belief. It has to become real at the level of the heart. It has to become real in a, in a relational sense. This is why David Martin Lloyd-Jones would say Christianity is not primarily a teaching nor a philosophy nor even a way of life. He says, in the first instance, it is before all a relationship to a person. What Paul is talking about here and what Lloyd-Jones is talking about here, they're talking about meeting and knowing Jesus, the person, coming to know him by the Spirit and through the Scriptures. And having that relationship bloom and blossom as a deep and meaningful experience of the heart. And I think the implication here from the Apostle Paul is that as Christians, as Christians trying to navigate our lives in the world that is, knowing Jesus and being in relationship with Jesus truly is our deepest need. Because it's only in truly knowing Jesus that you will ever experience meaningful and lasting heart change and life change. 
It's only in knowing Jesus that he can ever outshine and eclipse all of the many competing desires and affections of your heart. It's only in knowing Jesus that you will ever find the type of indestructible joy that does not depend upon your circumstances. And so how does that happen? Well, at a fundamental level, we go to him. We seek him. We get to know him. We can go to him in the same way we we would approach and pursue any relationship that was important to us by observing him, by studying him, by wanting to know what he likes and what he doesn't like, by understanding his character and his concerns, by spending time together in prayer, by getting to know him through his revealed word, by asking questions of him and listening and responding. There was a British minister who lived about a century ago who was writing to a friend about his experience of knowing Christ. In one of his letters, he said this. He said, Recently, I've been having very productive times in prayer. Usually once a week, and sometimes every day, a pressure of his great love comes down around my heart in such a measure as makes my whole being groan beneath the joy. He has unlocked every part of my being and filled and flooded them with the light and the love of his presence. Now, it's one thing to believe that God loves you in a general kind of way. It's another to have his love come down upon you and fill you and flood you in the way that this man described. Do you ever sense his presence? or his peace, or his power coming down upon you. And I know we're all on unique journeys with him, to be sure, but what Paul is saying in this passage is that knowing him and experiencing him, not just in our heads, but in our hearts as well, is our deepest need, and it's our greatest gain. Jesus would say something similar in John chapter 17, where he says, he says, this is eternal life, that you might know God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent, that you might know them, not know about them, not be familiar with them, not have some information concerning them, but to know them, he says. Jesus is saying that knowing God, knowing the Father, knowing the Son by the Spirit is an experience of the heart that is not just the goal of life, it is life. And Jesus was sent so that you and I might have it. Now you may say, wait a minute, how do I know if I know him in this way? I'm not sure I've had his love come down upon me, not in that sort of way. If that's what you're saying, I want to encourage you that this relationship with Jesus, this experience of the heart, it happens in different ways, at different times, to different degrees, in different people. Each journey is entirely unique. But each and every one of us should not only be coming to know more things about Jesus as we journey with him, but we need to be approaching him. We need to be dealing with him on a personal level, even more so at times than on an intellectual level or an academic level. And so we go to him as a person. We approach him in prayer by talking to him and listening. We approach him in the scriptures, expecting to interact with him. You struggle with things in the middle of the the day, and, and you sense that he's with you. You sense his presence. 
you sense his grace and his guidance in real time. You know you're not alone. Now, it's possible at this moment that you either know exactly what I'm talking about in all of this, or you may think I'm talking kind of crazy and, and mystical right now. I've got to tell you, for most of my life, this sounded like crazy talk to me. I would hear people talking about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and I wasn't sure what to make of it. I certainly wasn't buying any of it. Mostly, I just wanted such people to kind of tone it down a bit about Jesus. But then Jesus broke into my life somewhat abruptly and unexpectedly, and I experienced God's presence and God's power, God's love and his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace in ways that I did not know was possible. And my life has not been the same since. He showed me what it means to know him and to be known by him. And what's been driving me in my life ever since, all I really want and need in my life now more than anything else is simply to know him more. I think one of the clearest ways to know that you know him, one of the clearest ways to know that you've experienced his presence is that, that you want more of him, that you want to know him more. I hope that's why you come to church. I hope that's why you read your Bible. I hope that's why you pray to spend time with him, to interact with him, to get a fresh glimpse of him, to know him, and not just to know about him. And as you do, as you know him, as you spend time with him, you will begin to sense that changes are taking place in your heart. You begin counting things as loss that you used to count as gain, and vice versa. Your priorities will change, your perspective will change. Your heart was cold, and, and now it's warm. Your heart was hard, and now it's soft. Your heart was stagnant, and now it's fresh and alive. And knowing him means as well that you can take anything to him. There's nothing that needs to be held back. He knows it all anyway, doesn't he? That's one of the reasons I love King David and the many psalms that he wrote. We get to truly see an open and honest relationship with God on display in the scriptures uh, to teach us and to encourage us that we can approach God in this sort of way too. One moment, you may find David pleading for more of God, like in Psalm 63, where he says, he says, earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And this is clearly not David asking God to help him out in his, in his life. He's not asking God to make him a better guy or to fix his situation. This is a yearning from the depths of his soul for, for more of God's presence and for more of God himself. One thing that's really interesting is that you'll find David praising God profusely in, in one moment in the Psalms. He'll be saying, God, you are good and gracious and, and beautiful. And then you turn the page and you find David saying, God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Don't do this to me. And so this is a guy we can relate to, right? A guy who's struggling and straining, living out the highs and lows of life, but being willing to take it all to God openly and honestly and personally in light of the relationship that he had with him. Paul is saying in this passage that knowing Jesus Knowing Jesus is our deepest need 
and our greatest gain, and there is nothing like it. Now, as we move into the final few verses of this passage, Paul is going to get kind of practical for us here. Let's read it, picking it up in uh, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, Paul was a saved man, and, and he knew that. I do not think he often had doubts about that, and yet he also knew that there was much work to be done. In verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on. I press on toward uh, the prize, toward the goal. Paul knew that despite all of the incredible changes that had taken place in his life since he met Jesus, he was still in every way a work in progress. He knew that he had not yet reached his own ideal of what a Christian should be and what a Christian could be. And think about this particular verse, 12, in relation to your own struggles with sin in the Christian life. Whatever those particular sins are, the implication here by Paul is that there's a right way to deal with sin and a wrong way. The wrong way to struggle with your sin is to say, I've got this. I can control this. Let me manage this. In contrast, the right way to struggle with sin is to say, I don't got this. I can't control this. And I need help. And so I keep pressing into Jesus. I keep pushing on, knowing it is beyond my reach, but also knowing that it is not beyond his. Paul says, I don't look back. I push on. I press on. I pursue the prize, keeping my focus squarely on my uh, Savior rather than on my sin. Paul refused to be passive in his walk with Jesus, even though he knew his salvation did not depend in any way on anything at all that he did. Paul was constantly moving and working. He was constantly striving and straining and suffering, not in order to gain God's love and acceptance, because he, but because he already knew with absolute confidence that he already had it. He was well aware of his own shortcomings and of his need to continue pressing and, and pushing on, but he was also conscious that he was, at the very same time, making progress by God's grace and by God's power. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, he would say, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now, friends, we don't beat sin through behavior modification and self-help strategies. We beat sin by, by pressing into Jesus, by knowing him, by, by chasing him, by taking hold of him who Paul says in verse 12 first took hold of us. In verse 12, Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And this is very interesting language Paul uses here. In some other translations, you'll see this same verse saying, I press on to take hold of he who took hold of me. I press on to, to seize and to apprehend he who seized and apprehended me. That's what this verse is saying. There are two take holds in verse 12. 
One is saying Jesus takes hold and makes us his own. The other is saying that we take hold and make him our own. But what Paul makes very clear from that, this language is that Jesus is the one who takes hold first. What Paul is teaching here is very interesting. He's teaching us here that Christianity is not something that starts with you. Rather, it starts upon you. Christianity is not something you take up. It's something that, that takes you up. It's not something you seize or apprehend. It's rather something that seizes and apprehends you. This is why A.W. Tozer would say we pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge within us that spurs us to that very pursuit. We see this throughout the New Testament. God's mysterious initiating grace in the work of salvation. And it's utterly unique and it's incredibly humbling. And the reason this is so unique is that it's entirely counterintuitive. And it's entirely countercultural as well. If you go to any magazine stand or bookstore, if you go online looking for ways to improve yourself and ways to live your best life, what you're going to find is a never-ending range of options and opportunities. Some of them will be big, some small, some traditional, some will be new and progressive. But here's the thing, every single one of them starts and ends with you. If you do these things, if you subscribe to this system, if you participate in this plan, if you commit yourself to these behaviors, you can and will change your life, they would say. You can and will become the best version of you. It's all about you, it all starts with you, and it all depends upon you. But if we step back, if we're thoughtful about these things, we know that none of these programs or approaches or strategies really have any legitimate answers to this broken human condition in which we find ourselves. History seems to have shown that to us, I think, quite clearly. We are unable to, to fix ourselves. We're terribly broken as a people and as a race. And there is not and will never be any strictly human solution to the problems that plague the human heart and to the struggles that we face in this world. But Christianity is utterly unique in this regard. Christianity is something of the antithesis of self-help, is it not? Christianity says it's not about you at all. It does not start with you, does not end with you, and you most certainly do not have what it takes to do it on your own. It's utterly unique in its approach. Christianity says it's not about you, it's about Jesus. It starts with him. He initiates, he takes hold, he pursues, he apprehends. Now, to be clear, none of this means that every Christian conversion or every Christian experience is the same or must be dramatic like the Apostle Paul's. People come into Christianity with a variety of histories. Some people come in through dramatic crises in their lives. Other people come in more gradually. Some people come in emotionally because they're emotional people. Other people come in deliberately, really thinking things through. But what do they all have in common? Christian is someone who at some level is aware that they're being taken hold of. They're aware at some level that they're being pursued from the outside. A Christian does not say, sure, I picked up Christianity, I've done this, I've taken hold. No, a Christian is somebody who at some level is aware that they've been, they've been taken hold of. Now, the consciousness of this comes at different times. 
Some people from the very beginning of their spiritual journey almost immediately sense that God is after them. Other people are much more deliberate and they say, I'm on a search of my own, I'm doing it. Yet they continue to find that they just can't seem to break it off. Something has them. That's because they're not taking it up at all, it's taking them up. It can happen dramatically as with the Apostle Paul or it can happen subtly like it did with Lydia earlier in this letter to the Philippians. But in both cases, the Bible tells us that it's God who first takes hold and makes us his own. Now remember, there's another take hold in verse 12. It's your take hold and and my take hold. We are to take hold and make Jesus our own because he took hold and made us his own, Paul said. There's Christ's power by which he takes hold of us. And there's also the power that we receive as Christians, the power of the Holy Spirit by which we, in turn, take hold of Jesus. One of the ways you know you're an object of God's pursuit and his spiritual focus is that you develop a certain spiritual focus of your own. The casualness is over and you can't seem to shake it. And you don't really want to shake it. Jesus initiates and he pursues, but he also empowers our pursuit of him and enables our relationship uh, with him by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's what Paul is talking about in verse 10 when he talks about not only knowing Jesus, but about knowing the power of the resurrection. And we're talking about the same Holy Spirit who we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, raised Jesus uh, from the dead. And so there's power available to us, the power of the resurrection that can enable us to to accomplish in our hearts and our lives that which we could not accomplish apart from him. The very same power that came into Jesus' body and raised him up is at work within us. The same power, the same Holy Spirit offers to come in and raise to new life that which is dead and dying in our hearts and in our lives. And so where is the deadness in your life today? If we're going to be honest with each other, it shouldn't be hard to find in any of us. Just look at your anger. How are you possibly going to turn that into forgiveness? Look at your pride. How will that ever be turned to humility? Look at your insecurity. How do you instead turn that into confidence? Look at your self-centeredness. How's that going to be turned into compassion and generosity? Well, it's most certainly not going to happen by my power or by your power. I think we've all been there. I think we've all tried that. These changes come about not by trying harder or doing more, but by the power of the Spirit as we, as we nurture and nourish our relationship with Jesus and we, as we increasingly count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing him as our Savior and as our friend. This is one of the reasons why the 19th century pastor Thomas Chalmers would say that the best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world, he says, by seeing and experiencing the beauty and the excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing and knowing something more attractive than the world, and that is Christ. The more you pursue him, the more you know him, The more you know him, the more you grow into the power of the resurrection. It's the only way the deadness in our lives will ever be resurrected and redeemed in any lasting sense. That's how Paul did it. 
And he counted everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of, of knowing Jesus and knowing the power of the resurrection. But did you know Paul is not the only one who performed an audit of his life like this? He was not the only one who was counting things up and assessing and, and calculating the costs. You may recall just a few weeks back that, that Jesus was counting too. In chapter 2 of this letter to the Philippians, we're told that Jesus, though he was and is fully God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not count his divine status or his divine privileges as God as something to cling to, and so he gave them up. It says he emptied himself. He was willing to suffer the loss of all things by dying on a cross in our place for our sin in order that he might gain you and I in return. Jesus suffered the loss of his life. He suffered the loss of his family, the loss of the very things that meant the most to him, also that he might gain you and I and our salvation. Jesus gave up much to gain you and I, to take hold of us, to make us his own, so that you and I could in turn make him our own. And so, friends, would we be a people whose hearts are melted by who Jesus is and what he's done? Would we be a people who take hold more and more tightly of he who first took hold of us? And would we be a people who trust more and more deeply in the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord? Please join me in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for loving us and for pursuing us, for counting us as gain, even when that meant loss for you. I pray, God, that you would make us a people who experience deep and profound intimacy with you in heart-changing and life-changing ways. Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you raise to new life the deadness that remains within us? And would you increasingly enable us to count the things of this world as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing you and being in relationship with you. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.